Uh, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Philippians. It's a letter that a missionary church planter named Paul wrote to the Christians uh, in a place called Philippi. It's where the letter gets its name from, Philippians. Uh, and as a church planter, a missionary church planter in a time and a place that was hostile to Jesus, hostile to the gospel, Paul has found himself at various times in danger and in trouble. And in fact, when he writes this letter, he's writing from prison. He's writing from prison, and he doesn't know whether or not he's actually going to leave prison or whether or not he's going to be put to death for his faith in Christ. And so this letter has the scent of heaven in it. This letter has the, the sort of touch of eternity in it. And Paul is writing to instruct this church for what might be the last time. And this letter uh, sort of alternates between two general types of sections. One section is his pastoral exhortations to the church, ways in which he's encouraging the church to continue in the faith and to put their hope really more deeply and firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in another part of the letter, um, sections of the letter, is sort of uh, personal updates where Paul gives them news about his own situation. And even those updates are meant to be encouragements to them. Well, we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and we're in the middle of a pastoral exhortation that began in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says there, only let your manner of life uh, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he exhorts them there to unity. He exhorts them to, uh, he wants to hear whether he comes or, or hears about it later. He wants them to be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by their opponents. So he begins there exhorting them in unity. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, he's really dealing with this notion of unity and, and sort of teaching them what true unity in the church requires and showing them the connection between unity and their joy. We've titled this series, Serious Joy, because I think in this letter is, is God's instruction for how it is as Christian people, we might be joyful in every kind of circumstance. Not because the circumstance makes us happy, but because we have something beyond the circumstance that feeds the soul joy consistently. In this text, that something requires humility. Humility. If you're taking notes this morning, the outline for the sermon comes in four points, each having to do with an aspect of humility in this text. Number one, humility creates unity. Verses one and two, humility creates unity. Number two, humility crucifies selfishness. Humility crucifies or puts to death selfishness, verses 3 and 4. And number three, humility copies Jesus. Humility copies Jesus, verses 5 to 8. And then verses 9 to 11, humility crescendos or climaxes in exaltation. It crescendos or climaxes in exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Look there with me. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. First thing we want to observe in this text is that humility creates unity. That's what we see in verses 1 to 2. As I said, the sort of key idea running through this passage of Scripture is this notion of humility. And while the word isn't used in verses 1 and 2, it is the controlling idea for the entire passage. Here's how humility controls verses 1 and 2. It's by humility that we're able to recognize that any grace, any little amount of grace, can lead us to greater unity if we focus on it. See, humility recognizes that being together as the body of Christ produces more joy in the Christian than being alone or separated from the body. Notice verses 1 and 2 form a kind of if-then statement. Paul writes in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, and by implication, any sympathy, the notion is, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You see, the if section in verse 1 gives us the conditions, right? If these things are true, then there's something that follows. And the, the if there, if any, and the repetition of that word any gives us a sense of any at all. If there's the least little amount, if grace exists in pinches, then you have the condition from which you can create greater unity in the church. And it gives us five things there, right? If any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation or fellowship or sharing in the Holy Spirit. And I think in these first three, Paul has in mind our fellowship with God and the whole trinity of God. He mentions Christ when he talks about encouragement, the Holy Spirit when he talks about participation. But I think by implication, he has God the Father in mind when he talks about uh, comfort from love. For God is love. And it's God who shows his love to us in the crucifixion of his son and the gift of his spirit. He says, listen, if there's any of that grace around, and then in the next two, he sort of moves from the vertical sort of communion we have with God to the horizontal, I think, communion we have with each other. If there's any little affection, any feeling of warmth and love between you, any sympathy, if there's any ounce in you of caring for your brothers and sisters in their various situations, if that grace exists, then you have enough to go on to a fuller, mature, complete unity. See, humility recognizes grace in the smallest amounts in the church. Pride recognizes faults and failures in the smallest amounts in the church. Now, if a congregation doesn't have any of these things, well, it ain't a church. But if there's any little grace in the church at all, then the, the church is commanded then in this statement in verse 2, notice the command, to complete my joy. Now the pronoun there, my joy, could be translated actually your joy. Either translation is fine because either would, it be, would be appropriate. If the Philippians go on to grow in unity and joy, that's going to make the Apostle Paul happy. But, but it's also the case that if the local church in Philippi or this local church 
goes on to foster greater, deeper unity, that's going to work to the church's joy too. So we, we think of Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when, what? Brothers dwell in unity. That's a joy-giving experience in a local church. Unity creates joy. If we're humble enough to see any grace in our church, then we have an obligation then, according to verse 2, to build on that grace until we complete the joy of the entire church. Let me put it to you this way. One of the reasons to join a church and one of the ministries in the church for every member is the creation of joy. The church exists for the manufacture of spiritual joy in the people of God. You are belonging to the church. I pray and trust we all are belonging to the church, not so that we can tear the church apart, but so that we can build it together in unity and then delight in the joy that comes from that. From being together, fellowshipping with the triune God in encouragement and comfort and and spiritual fellowship and being together in fellowshipping with each other in affection and sympathy, that's what makes a sour heart sweet. But how do you create this unity? Well, Paul gives us three strategies, and this is where we see humility applied to unity. You might think of these strategies as a kind of agreement sandwich. Paul starts with agreement. He adds love in the middle. That's the meat. And then he slaps agreement again on the other side there. So the formula is agree, love, agree. Notice how he says there, make my joy complete by having, by being of the same mind. That means the church should pursue oneness in its thought life. He's already mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 27, didn't he? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 1, 27, he talks, he's talking there about this agreement as a defensive posture. We agree together in order to defend the gospel from outside attack. But in chapter 2, verse 2, he's talking about this agreement as an offensive posture, as a way of moving forward to positively create something. And that is joy. So we are meant to have the same mind. We are to agree together. More on that later. But then secondly, we are to go on from there, and we are to have the same love. We are to commit to loving one another with the same quality of love we have for others. Love must be without partiality. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 24 to 25. You can write this down or flip there with me. In another letter of Paul's, he's writing to a church that struggles with division. And this is what he says about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, in the middle of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? That there may be no division in the body. But notice now but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see what Paul is then saying in Philippians. We take the affection and the sympathy that may be there in any amount, and we grow it until we have the same care for one another. What does that look like? Well, imagine you're at home at night, 3 o'clock in the morning, you're sound asleep, and the phone rings. What's your first thought? Who in the world calling me at 3 o'clock in the morning? What's your second thought? Something's wrong. You answer the phone with the alertness you didn't have just seconds before. And imagine that it's a loved one on the other side, and they tell you there's been an accident, and another loved one as close to you is in the hospital. Well, what do you do? spring up out the bed. If they're really, if they're immediate family, you maybe make your way to the hospital if that's doable. If, if that's not doable, you at least pray and call out to the Lord, don't you? Now imagine it's three o'clock in the morning, you get a call from a brother or sister in the church, and they say, hey, I know it's late, but 
I, I called to ask you to pray because Jack is in the hospital and you don't know Jack very well. And, and you kind of like, well, you, this could have waited till the morning. You don't say that. Please don't say that. <laughs> but you're thinking, this could have waited till the morning because I don't know Jack that well. And you're running through the mental Rolodex trying to figure out who Jack is. And maybe you ask a couple follow-up questions about who is Jack. And, and they tell you a little bit more about Jack. But you, you're still kind of fuzzy. You hang up the phone. You probably don't get up and rush to the hospital. You probably foggily go back to sleep with a half-uttered prayer. Now, what the Bible is saying here is that's all very natural. But our fellowship is supernatural, right? So that what we want to do is close the gap between how we respond to a loved one in an emergency situation and how we respond to a brother or sister we don't know very well in the church. So that our love for those we are close to and know well begins to sort of spread even to those we know less well and maybe less close to. And so we begin to sort of close the gap so that we have the same love for one another. That's what we're called to here in verse 2. That's part of our strategy, to be intentional about growing affection and sympathy until we feel the same way in love about all the saints. Then he says, complete my joy by being in full accord and of one mind. So he comes again to restating the importance of agreement in the church. Now, this full accord and one mind does not mean we all think the same way about every topic. It means, rather, that we think the same way and agree about the main things in the gospel and the duties that flow from the gospel. So when Paul writes this, he does not have in mind matters of Christian freedom and conscience. He addresses that over in Romans 14 and 15. He has in mind being of one accord in doctrine and the duty that follows from that doctrine. You see that in a couple of places. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Again, you can write this down or turn there with me. Paul's giving a kind of benediction to the church in Rome, and this is what he writes. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. You see, the basis of the harmony is Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, and what Jesus is doing for us, not things outside of Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or consider 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, where there now Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, gives kind of a, a, the same kind of counsel, but in a more negative context. This is what he writes, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, you see, doctrine and duty. If somebody comes with a different doctrine and teaches some jacked up lifestyle, some jacked up duty, Paul says this, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see what he's saying? Paul says, listen, the natural result of gathering together and giving your attention to divisive things rather than agreeing together in Christ and agreeing together with that duty that conforms to the gospel, the natural sort of result of that is not going to be unity. It's going to be friction. It's going to be dissension. It's going to be conflict. It's going to be constant consternation among the brethren. So Paul is telling us that vital to unity is the hard work of people who walk into the room from all kinds of backgrounds, with all kinds of beliefs and principles and commitments, the hard work of taking a people so diverse and shaping their mind to Christ, conforming it to Jesus, 
and conforming their lives to Jesus so that Christ is the plumb line and so that the gospel is the standard and that the biblical truth is what we gauge our life against. He's saying now, if you have the same mind and you do that with people whom you know love you and then you work to be in full accord with one mind, the result of that is joy, gladness, happiness in the church. So then the questions for us become, are you and I humble enough to recognize grace in our church family? Are we humble enough in mind and opinion to seek and strive for full accord until we're one mind? Are we humble enough to love those with whom we at first disagree and to recognize the grace of their love even while we're disagreeing? And are we humble enough to grow to love all the members with the same love, with the same quality of care and concern? Is there enough grace in us to commit ourselves to this? See, humility creates unity, and unity creates joy. Which brings us to our second point. Humility crucifies selfishness. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. And what I want to suggest to you is verses 3 and 4 each give us two forms of selfishness. The first form is in verse 3. It's self-importance. Notice what Paul writes in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Or you may have a translation that says, do nothing from rivalry and conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now here we get the first explicit reference to humility. Right? Humility comes from a word, hummus, which means earth. So maybe it has in it the notion of down-to-earthness or earthiness. It says, now in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, the self-important want to be number one in everything. They are competitive, selfish ambition or rivalry. And they are proud, conceit. They want a name for themselves. These are the kinds of folks who put others down so they can look better. I love the way Dr. Robert C. Roberts at Baylor puts this in his book, Spiritual Emotions. He says, we are committed to building our egos on the foundation of inferiority, the inferiority of others. Uh, that's how our pride works if it's not redeemed and checked and crucified. We make ourselves look better by making others look lower. He goes on to say this, it's really an indication that proud people destroy unity. Dr. Roberts says, it is not difficult to see why people who lack humility are spiritually bankrupt. Their capacity for human relationships, the spiritual ones that are the most important of our lives, is poisoned by the tendency to climb to eminence at someone else's expense. I mean, none of us want to really be close, do we, to people who seem to be trying to climb to the heap by stepping on other people. And I mean, we're Christians. We're not so crass as to do that openly and violently. We do that subtly and smoothly and with Christian speak, don't we? We need to understand this concept of humility if we want deep unity. And the ways in which self-importance shows itself in our conversation. Let me give you an illustration. If I said Michael Jordan and I are equal as basketball players, <laughs> then you'd know I was lying. A little bit. 
very delusional. And the claim to equality in that case was really a claim that was raising my worth as a basketball player, wasn't it? You know, so I'm, I'm there dropping a name, making a comparison, claiming equality in a way that elevates me. That's not humility, that's pride. Now, if I looked at a player of equal talent, if we could ever find one, <laughs> and, and, and said, yeah, he all right. I don't really like his jump shot, you know, his form, kind of raggedy. And you knew, hating, hating. And you knew we were players of, of equal talent. You know what I'm doing there. I am elevating myself this time, not by raising myself to the equality of a superior in talent. I am elevating myself by lowering the equality of, of, of one who is equal to me. That's not humility. That's pride. See, in either case, my assessment of myself grows in relation to my assessment of the other. But true humility perceives the equality of all other persons, now this is important, without reference to the self. Let me give you a longer quote from Dr. Roberts as he meditates on humility. Uh, it's, it's dense, but follow me here. Humility is an emotion disposition, primarily a negative one, a disposition or a posture emotionally not to feel the emotions associated with caring a lot about one's status. So humility is, is this, this absence of emotion driven by status. As, as an inclination to construe or perceive as my equal every person who is presented to me. So humility looks at every person presented to you and, and says equal. Humility is a disposition not to be downcast by the fact that someone is clearly ahead of me in the games of the world, nor to find any satisfaction in noting that I am ahead of someone else in those games whether it's education, wealth, beauty, prestige, power, class, whatever. Humility is not keeping score about where we're ranking in this worldly race. It is the ability to have my self-comfort or self-assessment quite apart from any question about my place in the social pecking order. It is the absence of a spiritually cannibalistic appetite. It is thus a self-confidence, one that runs far deeper than the tenuous self-confidence of the person who believes in himself because others look up to him. So we, we want the kind of humility that regards every other person made in the image of God as our equal. And, and we want to make that assessment about being equal as persons without keeping rank and score on other dimensions. That is security rather than insecurity. And most of the world is just rife with insecurity. Paul now, when he writes verse 3, is reminding us that he's commanding us that, that there is this humility which crucifies self-importance precisely in this way, by regarding the other person as your equal, even counting them as more significant than yourself. Not in a false humility, and not in a humble brag, not in all those ways that mimic humility, but in this deep security that knows that every person you meet is made in the image of God like you. And that's where your dignity and your worth comes from, not from all the other things in the world. That kind of humility crucifies self-importance, and when self-importance dies, then joy and unity can flourish. Now, verse 4 gives us a second form of selfishness that's crucified. It's not self-importance, it's self-interest. We may not be competitive people or feel important, self-important. 
But that doesn't mean we're not selfish. Selfishness can take many forms. And here, verse 4, focuses not on the person, but on the interests of the person. The word interest in verse 4 is what we've been calling cares through this series. Remember that our emotions are determined by what we think will happen to our cares. If we have something that we care about and we think it's going to go well for that care, then we have positive emotions based on that perception. Joy, peace, so on. But if we have a care and we think it's going to go badly for that care, then that produces in us negative emotions like anger, fear, and anxiety. Right? So if our cares go well, we're happy. If our cares go poorly, we're, we're sad or angry. And, and if our cares are ruling us instead of what we've been calling passion, the deeper, central, uh, organizing principles of the gospel and Christ and the kingdom of God, if our cares are ruling us, then we will be the kind of people who are emotionally tossed to and fro. Rather than so rooted in Christ that joy comes up almost despite our cares. But our cares can play too big a part in our lives. Our interests can be too dominant. Interests that may be good, but are not sort of eternal. And when that happens, we can be tempted to make our interests into our idols functionally. And we can be tempted to selfishness. Here's how. If we exalt our interests above everyone and anyone else's interests, and or we look out only for our interests, only give attention to our cares, and or we insist that everyone then joins us in our interests and how we wish those interests to be fulfilled, then we are in serious danger of making an idol of our interests, and self-interest has become the sin of selfishness. You tracking with me? So that's why Paul writes in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So notice how humility does not deny our personal interests. Paul doesn't say, forget your interests and just serve everyone else's. The text assumes that we're going to look for look out for our interests, right? Instead, verse 4 says, look out for your interests as well as the interests of others. Now, let's be clear. Verse 4 is not calling us to a trade or a barter. Paul is not saying, you know, you go to your brother and sister and you say, hey, look, if you look out for my interests, I'll look out for yours. That's still just self-interest. But it's gotten crafty. That is not what Paul is calling for here. This is a little bit tricky. It's not quid pro quo. It's not a trade. That's not unity. That's just a transactional and limited alliance. Verse 4 calls us to care for the interests of others as if they were our own. And, And without regard for whether looking out for their interests improves our own. Because it's growing up out of the humility that's expressly stated in verse 3. So to say that humility crucifies selfishness is to say humility eliminates self from the equation altogether. So we view an interest on its merits. We view an interest with sympathy and affection. And we will adopt an interest not our own as if it were our own. Humility has a high regard for others without bringing everything back to us. And when I think about our church family, I do not think we're selfish in a material sense. At the level of sharing material needs and expressing an interest in others and their interests, I've seen so much radical generosity in this church family. It is humbling and encouraging. I see individuals give beyond their their regular giving to go on to give specifically to the Benevolence Fund. 
as a way of caring for the cares and interests of others who might be in need of various sorts. I see individuals give beyond their regular giving to give to individual missionaries that they support on the mission field to make sure that they don't have a financial or material need while they try to advance the gospel on the mission field. At least twice, I've seen members of this church quietly pool their money together to buy someone else a car. Once a recent refugee fleeing to the country for his life and safety and once a member of the church. I see some of you buying groceries for members in need. Never mention it publicly. Just selfless. I've seen some of you hiring people who need a job even though they don't have good work histories and good work habits. I've lost count of the number of times I've seen in the email exchange all caps need met for sometimes frankly bizarre stuff. <laughs> and, and I recall with great gladness the, the great number of you who volunteered at last spring's um, job fair. Some of you are people at the time with high security clearances in this country. Others of you are attorneys at places like the Department of Justice, small business owners, professors and teachers from college campuses. Now, the world would have said to all of you based on your status that it was okay if you were too busy to volunteer and come serve at an inner city job fair. No one would have thought less of you. Most would have thought that was understandable, that you served your interests rather than the interests of others but you were there in strong number. Passing out water in the heat, ushering people to interviews, serving whatever need came to the fore. I think we are materially generous as a church. It's also the only thing that explains why in just a little over three years, we're so close as an inner city church plant to being independent as a church financially when it takes most churches in the inner city seven to ten years if they ever reach financial independence. It's the generosity materially in this church. But think with me about something. Maybe you can pray about this and talk about this over, over lunch in a, in a spiritual and prayerful and redemptive way. I do think from time to time there is a self-interest among us that is a threat to our unity as a church. I love that God has filled this church family with people who care deeply about a range of issues, social, theological, and so on, who care about causes, who express an interest in those interests. I mean, many of us regard ourselves as advocates and activists in our own lanes. I love that. I think God is doing something unique here in, in this particular, I hate to use the word, evangelical church, this gospel-believing church, where he's sort of bringing people here with a high regard for the gospel and a high regard for witness and application of the gospel on these issues and concerns. I hope that only grows and never changes. Yet, here's a challenge I think I sometimes see. If we are not careful, we can take that issue we care about and demand that everyone else care about that interest without our showing interest and care for the interests of others. Some evangelical churches make abortion the only interest anyone can and should care about. And if you don't only talk about that and leave all that other stuff alone, you are going left and liberal and a heretic and off into some dangerous waters. Other churches may make racism the same kind of litmus test for fellowship and maturity and authenticity of faith. So we have to be careful that we don't make, for example, immigration an enemy of abortion. And abortion the enemy of racism, and racism, the enemy of protecting abused women and children, and the protection of abused women and children, the enemy of everything else and so on. You tracking with me? We must make sure we don't do this with spiritual things too. 
We cannot make evangelism the interest we put over benevolence. And, and we can't make benevolence the enemy we pit against international missions abroad. And, and we cannot make international missions the interest that we pit against church planting and, and so on. So we have to look out for our interests as well as the interests of others, which means we've got to have an expansive concern for our brothers and sisters in the church and all that God gives us to care about. We have to be challenged to have larger hearts and to care more deeply about more things. There are some things that will naturally hit home, closer to home, be quite deeply personal. And a care for that that's intense is understandable. But a care for that that is exclusive of all other cares and the interests of others is not. So we cannot let causes make us proud. And the sign of that pride is that we will disdain the interests and perspectives of others and try to hold the church hostage to our own. Now, I think this form of self-interest just may be the most significant threat to church unity we face so far as a church. It seems like it's the source of a fair amount of discontentment, complaint, and withdrawal into isolation. So let me just describe that again. It seems like it's the source of discontentment, complaint, and withdrawal into isolation. If you notice that motion at all in you, then notice you are moving contrary to verses 1 to 4, wherein we are supposed to be moving toward each other with the same mind, the same love, full accord, deep unity built upon humility. Let's watch out for that in ourselves and pray against it as a church. Which brings us to a couple of application questions. Is there any evidence of self-importance in my dealing with others? Can I detect in my heart that tendency so natural to a fallen sinful man to sort of climb up the pecking order in some way at other people's expense? Do I put others down, name drop, bring every story back to me in some way? Or, number two, is there evidence of self-interest in my dealings with others? Am I disgruntled if my thing isn't what everybody cares about? Am, Am I tempted to take my marbles and go home if people won't join me in my thing? Am I making my interests into a spiritual requirement for everyone else? Or number three, contrary to all of that, am I joyful and eager to take the cause of others as my own without regard to myself? Am I joyful and eager to take the cause of others, whether practical or political or theological, as my own without regard to my benefit and myself. That's the kind of humility that crucifies selfishness. Number three, humility copies Jesus. Don't worry, these next two points are much faster. Humility copies Jesus. That's what we see in verses five to eight. How in the world do we get this kind of humility that crucifies self-importance and self-interest? Where does that kind of thinking come from? Well, the answer is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus. But Paul says it right there in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves. So there's a way that we are meant to think together as a church. And then he says this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, the older translation, translations say something like this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Or as the NIV puts it, if I can find that real quick, uh, the NIV puts it, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Listen, unity happens between our ears most fundamentally. It, it happens with how we think. And how we think has a tremendous determinative impact on how we live together. 
So Paul has exhorted them to unity in verses 1 to 4. Now in verses 5 to 8, he's telling us what kind of thinking produces that kind of humility and unity and joy. So we don't get humility, unity, or joy from personality cults, from, from the leaders trying to make all of you like us. We're after unity, not uniformity. Right? And, and we don't get that kind of humility, unity, or joy from politics. Just look at how divisive and self-righteous our country's politics have become. And how many of our brothers and sisters seem to have lost really their credibility and their witness by joining that divisiveness and self-righteousness. So we got to be careful to speak prophetically into those arenas, and we should with boldness and courage and point blankness sometimes without getting entangled with the way of the world on this. We get joyful, humble unity from one source, from Jesus. We grow in this unity and this humility with one strategy, thinking the way Jesus thought and acting the way Jesus acted. So in verses 6 to 8, Paul says we should descend like Jesus. Verse 5, we should think like Jesus. Verses 6 to 8, we should descend like Jesus. Now I want you to see the motion of this text. Verse 6, we see Jesus in his deity. We call it his deification. He is equal with God. Verse 7, we see Jesus in his incarnation. He takes upon himself the the likeness of a servant. He is born in the likeness of men. So he is luring himself from equality with God. He counts it as something not to be grasped, not to be jealously held on to, in order to take upon himself our likeness. Now, how many of you know that's a big step down? And then he comes in verse 8, and he humbles himself and becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the most despised and shameful way to die in the ancient Roman world. He dies as a criminal, though he committed no crime. He dies as a sinner, though he never committed sin. Here is one who has voluntarily relinquished his place in heaven in equality with God to take upon himself our humanity in order to die in our place. He leaves his position to cure, to cure and to heal our condition. You see the reversal. He exchanges glory for shame so that the shameful might one day be glorified together with him in God. He says, this is the pattern of Christian thinking. Listen, beloved, before we can ever be exalted, we must be humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the Christian life, the way up is down. And if you try to climb up, God will bring you down. And so Paul says, think like Jesus among yourselves together. Cultivate this way of regarding your life and descend like Jesus. So Jesus didn't think equality with God was to be grasped or held onto lightly and jealously. He didn't clutch that position and that power and that prerogative and that privilege and every other P word. So now in the church... We should not think that our position and our power and our privileges and our prerogatives are ours to be grasped, to be held on to tightly, to compete for. No, man. In the church, we lay it down. We set it aside because we think like Jesus by his grace. I love Pastor George. He's a humble man. It's a delight to ordain him today. This is a delight delight to to ordain Dennis. You know what I love about these men? Neither of them assume that they should be pastors. They don't feel entitled. They have not been clutching for it. 
They have not been grabbing for it. I'm allergic to that. I see a brother reach out. It's, nah, uh-uh. you ain't ready. Jesus was allergic to that. James and John send their mama and say, hey, let one of them sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand when you come to your glory. Just say, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink this cup I drink? So praise God for the pastors he gives us and praise God for the grace he gives us to think like Jesus in this self-emptying way. Notice now, Jesus emptied himself, or you have translation says, made himself nothing or made himself of no reputation by becoming a servant. So we should not take offense at serving the interests of other brothers or sisters in the church. We should die to self-importance and die to self-interest. One thing a servant does not have is self-interest that they act on. If you were a servant or a slave to someone in the ancient world, you existed to serve the needs of the owner, the other. And now Christ, we become slaves of Christ. His interest is our greatest interest. And his church interest is our interest. And we give ourselves as servants to each other, dying to self-interest as a ruling idol. And beloved, what's happening in this text is Jesus is showing us what humanity really looks like. In failing to be humble, we have, fell, failing, we have fallen to recognize that we're but dust. We're but earth and clay. And we have sought an exalted position to be our own gods. And Christ is showing us that perfect humanity looks like a servant. Servant to God and a servant to others. And notice, Jesus obeyed the Father, verse 8 says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we should not, if we think like Jesus, feel shame or loss at dying to self, carrying our cross, and working for unity. Of sacrifice and opinion and position to agree together with each other of sacrificing self-interest to express sympathy and affection and love for each other. Sometimes that's costly. But do you remember what said of our Lord? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised its shame. I wonder if there's joy in our sight when we think about dying to self to care for others. We are not to shrink back, but to give ourselves to others. Listen, all Christian humility and unity are is understanding how much Jesus gave up to be with us and to save us. And then following Jesus and giving up ourselves to be with each other and to build up each other. Unity comes from us thinking like Jesus. If he gave up his position at the right hand of God, and was willing to enter into our vulnerability as human beings and willing to die on the cross for our sins. How can we refuse to give up our little privileges and position and power? How can we refuse to agree together as we come to God's word? How can we refuse to be vulnerable with each other in affection and sympathy? We can only refuse those things and prefer disunity if we are proud rather than humble. We make a lousy standard for humility. But Jesus makes the perfect standard. Humility follows Jesus. And I love the way Hannah Anderson puts this so well in her book, Humble Roots. We are not Jesus. Amen. Jesus comes to restore our humanity through his. But we are not Jesus. We can be entirely well-intentioned, but if we attempt to pursue even humility apart from him, we will simply act out our own pride once again. Never limit your assessment of yourself to yourself. Base your assessment on Jesus, even when it comes to humility. So how do we apply this? Three questions. We have to ask ourselves, how well do we as a church share the mind of Christ? 
Do we think this way among ourselves? Is this part of our conversation? Do we adjust each other in this way? If we hear someone expressing what sounds like self-importance or self-interest or disunity, do we bring them to Christ and say, no, my brother and sister, think the way Christ thinks. You have this mind in Christ. How well do we do that? Number two, is our unity built on Jesus's pattern of thinking or our own? Are we basing unity on the limits we think we can go to or are willing to go to? Or are we basing unity on the limits that Jesus went to? Which is our pattern? And number three, do we measure humility against Jesus' incarnation and humiliation or against our own standards? Beloved, let's spend some time just imagining in our spiritual lives and in our conversations what joy we could have if we all thought this way and acted this way with Christ and with each other. Which brings us to our final point as we conclude. Verses 6 to 8 trace Jesus' movement from deity to humility, from heaven to the cross, but Jesus didn't remain in the grave. He didn't remain dead. His humiliation was not the end. On the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the climax of the story. That's the crescendo of the story. And the reward for humility is exaltation. That's what we see in verses 9 to 11. Therefore, in verse 9, indicates that the exaltation that's about to be described is as a result. It is therefore, there because Jesus showed such humility. In the kingdom of God, the, the way up, as we said, the way to exaltation is down in humility. And the way down in judgment is casting ourselves up in pride. But notice how high... Christ is exalted. He is exalted above every name. He's bestowed an honor and a greatness above every name. This means that there is no name that can challenge his name. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means that there is no name that can come close to his rule. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, when Paul talks about this power that raises Jesus from the dead, he says he sent him far above all rule and authority. I don't know who you think is ruling the universe, but I'm here to tell you it's Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose name, his authority, his power is exalted above all names. It's good news that when we get to heaven, if we go to heaven, we need to make sure that we're right and we'll talk about it in a second. It's good news that when we reach the so-called pearly gates, ain't nobody asking us who we knew on earth. Ain't nobody impressed by name dropping. You don't get no points for working at the White House. Might ask you which administration, but (laughs) it's a joke. That's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> you don't get no points because you associated with this one or that one or whatever. You know what? There's one name that people want to know, that God wants to know, that we know when we get to heaven. That's the name of Jesus because there's no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. That name is above every name. Look how high he is raised. Every creature will have to bow low. And when I say every creature, I mean every creature. Notice Paul says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Whatever's under there too. So the angels in the angelic realm must bow and worship at this name. Every creature on the planet, human and animal, will bow and worship this name. And every creature in the earth and every demon below will tremble at this name and worship this Christ. Every creature in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth will praise the name of Jesus. To the glory of God the Father. So three questions as we close. Maybe you're hearing you're not yet a Christian. Here's my question to you. Will you bow now in faith or later in judgment? You are going to bow 
Will humility lead you to bow and confess now? Or will pride stiffen your neck until God's power brings you down? Repentance is simply humility. Admitting that we are sinners and that we deserve judgment. Faith is simply humility. Admitting that we cannot save ourselves and that we need a Savior. And Jesus is Him. You may say to me, Pastor T, I got some questions. Okay, that's great. Lots of people have questions. Ain't nothing wrong with questions. But are your questions honest? Do you want answers? Here's how I can tell. Let me, uh, uh, let me ask you this question. If you've got questions and they're keeping you hesitant about trusting in Jesus, let me ask you this. If I could answer your questions, all of your questions, to your complete satisfaction, would you bow right now and worship Jesus? See, if you wouldn't, that means your questions are a smokescreen. You're hiding behind your questions. You're acting like you don't know what you do know in order so that you can go on doing things you know you shouldn't do. But if you're really humble and you're really near the kingdom of God, you take that bargain and you'd follow up with me and we would talk about your questions and we would get you answers. So which is it? If I could answer all of your questions to your complete satisfaction, would you bow and worship Jesus or not? This brings us to the third question. It's really a paraphrase of the first two. I'm meant to try and hopefully make things clear. Would you rather be exalted with Christ or cast down to hell? You see, what's described of Jesus in verses 9 to 11 happens to the Christian too. Because we are united with Christ. This same glory which he receives from the Father will be ours in glory with him. God offers you his son. He offers you eternal life. He offers you love and glory with him. Which do you want? Be honest with your heart. Know that if you don't want this, there's something wrong with your heart. Confess it to Christ. Ask for a new heart that you might live. Christ has carried our sins to the cross where he died for them in our place. The Father has raised Jesus from the grave and seated him at his right hand in heaven for our justification. Jesus is coming again to gather all those who believe in him into an eternal kingdom of joy and love. He commands now all people to confess their sins and to repent of them and place their faith in him as their God and their Savior. You must do that before you die. When you die, it will be too late. But now, so you will be exalted in the end, trust Jesus. Receive him as Savior and God. Believe on him and live. Put your faith in Jesus as your own personal Lord and Savior. Do it for your never-ending joy. It's what he offers you. Come to him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we say with the hymn writer, there is no Savior like the lowly Jesus. Praise you for his humility. We praise you for his willingness to lay aside such immense glory which he is worthy of which he had with you from before the foundation of the world we praise you that he would do this for lowly sinners like us that we might be made new that we might be restored to fellowship with you that we might have our sins forgiven and atoned for that we might be declared righteous, that we might receive your spirit, which keeps us until that great and glorious day. And we thank you that you've called us to be a part of your church. 
Lord, to be in fellowship with you and with each other. And we praise you that you have made your church the theater for our joy. So we pray that as a congregation, we would be able to apply Philippians 2, indeed, your whole Bible, so that we would grow ever so slowly and sometimes in leaps and bounds. We would grow to be of the same mind, having the same love for each other, being in full accord and with one mind, so that our joy and your joy over us would be complete. Oh, Lord, a a disunited church is an unhappy church. We would rather your happiness, your joy, personally, in our marriages, in our families, in your church. Help us to apply this word so that we might find our happiness in you. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.